All right, I'd like to call the December 5th, 2022 regular meeting of the Shoreline City Council to order. Will you please join me in the flag salute? Pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Will the clerk please call the roll? Mayor Scully. Present. Deputy Mayor Robertson. Councilmember Ramsdale. Present. Councilmember Mark. Here. Councilmember McConnell. Here. Councilmember Popey. Here. Councilmember Roberts. Here. Councilmember Popey. Thank you, Mayor. I ask that Deputy Mayor Robertson be excused for personal reasons. Thank you. Is there a second? Second. Any dissenting votes? Seeing none, the deputy mayor is excused for personal reasons. Next up is approval of the agenda. Is there any comments or changes to the proposed agenda? <coughs> Excuse me. Seeing none, the agenda is adopted unanimously. Next up is the report of the city manager, Mr. Ellington. Yes. Good evening, council. As we begin to warm up from our first winter storm of the season, I'd like to provide you with a recap of our ongoing response. The timing of this early winter storm made this storm response particularly challenging. As snow started falling earlier this week, it mixed periodically with rain, creating extremely heavy snow and a layer of ice. Some parts of the city had as much as five inches of snow. Many trees still have leaves, and the weight of the snow caused a significant number of trees and branches to fall, impacting power lines and the right-of-way. In addition to clearing snow from streets, staff members worked to clear the trees and branches from streets and also in areas where Seattle City Light needed to access down power lines. Because of the intensity of this storm, the removal and cleanup of down trees and branches still remaining in the public right-of-way will be ongoing work activity this month. Because of the low temperatures and icy conditions, our usual road closures were difficult to clear and plow equipments were, um, I'm sorry, our usual road closures were difficult to clear with plow equipment and were reopened as soon as conditions permitted. Staff members from our public works, code enforcement and customer response, parks and wastewater team worked in 12-hour shifts for much of the event, shifting back to regular eight-hour shifts today. Our plow operators made multiple passes on our primary and secondary routes. They then moved into the neighborhood streets where they are still at work today. I'd like to give a big shout out to our snow operations team and support staff for their long hours of work in navigating this response. The city has begun to work on the update to the Parks, Recreation, Open Space and Arts, our PROSA plan. The plan will establish a long-term vision that will help guide how money will be spent and what services the city will offer for the next six years. To ensure that the plan reflects the voices of Shoreline community members and support the vision of Shoreline as a thriving, welcoming community, we are asking the community to provide their comments and ideas in an online open house. The open house is available through January 27th and can be accessed at shorelinewa.gov forward slash PROSA plan. This is just one of the ways through which we will ask for feedback from the community. We are creating several other opportunities for inclusive participation throughout the planning process in the next year. 
The draft plan is expected to be available for review by the public in the summer of 2023. And then finally, a reminder for our residents who braved the weather to put up holiday lights this weekend that our second annual winter porch light parade has begun. Register your display through December 14th at bit.ly forward slash winter porch light parade. Light displays in any type of space are welcome and encouraged. Registration is free with an optional competition for those who would like to participate. And for anyone and for everyone to enjoy, find a map of all the registered displays in North King County at the same website. New displays are added to the map every day as displays are registered. And that completes the city manager's report. Thank you, Mr. Ellington. Next up are council reports. Are there any council reports? No. Uh, Councilmember McConnell. Still muted, Councilmember. <laughs> I can't walk and talk and chew gum at the same time. I was trying to look for the raised hand feature. Thank you, Mayor. Um, I attended uh, the Seashore Transportation Forum, uh, which meets monthly. And um, a little aside there, since we have gone hybrid, and even with uh, the pandemic issue becoming a little bit more of a thing of the past, I believe Jim and one other staff member are the only people that are in the room up on the fourth floor. Um, uh, but the participation is through the roof because of um, us being able to zoom in. So I, I see that as uh, a continuing feature of uh, a lot of our um, regional meetings. The uh, the most important, well, there are two important things that happen at the uh, the meeting. The the last one, which I'm going to say really briefly, is that we did go through a half hour of uh, updating, improving, et cetera, the legislative agenda for next year. And we also uh, trimmed it down because we thought it was getting too long. Uh, and, uh, you know, basically a lot of the highlights mirror what Shoreline is asking for uh, with our own legislators. So when I get a real final hard copy, we, we did vote it, um, we passed it, but uh, with the uh, with all the revisions, we didn't get a hard copy at the, at the meeting. Uh, but when I do, I will share that with the rest of the council. The other thing was a, uh, a great presentation called, um, by Washdoc called Virtual Coordination Center. And it was given by Travis Phelps, uh, the Mobility and Technology Manager for Washdot. Washdot, excuse me. What I really am excited about this is it was funded by a $3.5 million grant, and um, basically to to have all the entities talking to each other when there is a major catastrophe in our transportation grid. Uh, grid. Uh, for example, the the one thing that. Um, that happened recently was a large tanker turnover on um, I-5 near the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, Safeco Field, uh, T-Mobile, what, whatever they're called now. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, but the, the concern about that was when it turned over, you know, it had a lot of, you know, it was full of flammable um, uh, material. And so there was just a lot of coordinating the, I, I understand, I, I wasn't on the road at all, but it, Currently, it um, closed down that whole area for hours. Uh, and uh, so what this grant is going to do is help this large kind of scale 
issue become a more coordinated effort. So they divided it up when they reported it to us in wave called wave one, two, and three. And what it is is basically a progression of entities being able to talk to each other, knowing who to talk to. And uh, like, um, and wave two was what to do to keep cars moving. And uh, for example, like closing streets, um, finding out, you know, in live time what's not working so that traffic can be re-diverted, whatever it takes. Wave three is actually the communication dashboard, which is a little bit of, um, of summary even after the fact of what, what went well, what didn't um, go well. They're hoping that uh, when this grant runs out in 2023 that that this will be something that they can continue. It's the first time that this has uh, ever happened, um, having a, a, a large-scale coordination effort. And so they're, they're very excited of uh, having the grant money to help. I think the final budget was actually uh, $8.6 million, so they, they got about half of it funded by a large grant. Um, other than that, um, we're going to see probably some changes in staff and uh, and members of, of this uh, board next year, like we do with everything else. And thank you very much, Mayor. Thank you, Councilmember. Councilmember Roberts. Uh, thank you, Mayor. I just wanted to point out that the Sound Cities Association uh, sent out an email this afternoon uh, mentioning that there are several vacancy vacant positions on regional boards and committees including the PSRC Growth Management Policy Board and the Regional Law, Safety, and Justice Committee. Thank you, Mayor. And I'd encourage everyone to uh, consider filing for one of those, applying for one of those positions. Thank you. Thank you, Councilman Merton. You stole my thunder, because I, I will be forwarding that out, just as a reminder to everybody tomorrow with, a, with an encouragement that if you have the bandwidth to get involved in one of those, um, even if it's not, your first choice committee getting involved with SCA is a great way to get involved. Some of the, the more influential committees take some while to get on. It takes, takes a while to get to know folks there and get appointed to it. So if you're interested in the regional governance things, getting your foot in the door is a great way to, to help out. And every one of those committees is, is important. So I'll send that out uh, either tonight or tomorrow with a, with a suggestion that anyone who, who can attend one of those meetings do so. Are there any further council reports? Great, thank you. Next up is public comments. This is an opportunity for members of the public to comment on any item on the agenda or any item of concern. There are two folks signed up in advance, so everybody gets three minutes. We're gonna take the people in person first in the order they signed up, then the folks online in the order they signed up. And if anyone hasn't signed up, we'll give you a chance to, to, to speak at the end. So Ms. Simulchek-Smith, will you go ahead and administer the public comment, period. Yes, and actually we have four people signed up total this evening and two are signed up for the public hearing, so I will call on them later on this evening. So for general public comment, we first have Alan Coburn. Hi, I'm Alan Coburn. I'm supposed to make sure you know that I've already passed out my handouts. Do not look at the laminated one because that's my climax. So. Uh, good evening. I'm Alan Coburn. I'm a 30-year-old Richmond Beach resident. And 30, 30 years old, right. 30-year Richmond Beach resident and president of the nonprofit Shoreline Auxiliary Communication Service. As I reminded everybody last meeting, uh, we, our mission is to provide command communications coordination and control services to incident commanders like a fuel truck rolling over, by the way. Uh, and we provide 30-plus FCC licensed emergency trained staff, both 
communications and emergency trains using the National Incident Management System. We also can talk to uh, WASDOT, Washington State Patrol, Air Force, Marine, or, uh, Marine bands, etc. So we're here to help you with your communication. Uh, I want to provide input and counsel to you regarding the Comprehensive Emergency Management Plan. And it's up for approval tonight. The CEMP needs to be a National Incident Management System compliant. And the reason for that is it sets forth responsibilities, expectations, and rules for disaster management and access to state and federal resources. Specifically, to each of you, individually and collectively, I want to make sure you know that the CEMP under discussion tonight is the playbook authored by you, effectively the Shoreline team owners and coaching staff. A thoughtful, thorough, and complete CEMP is essential so you can meet your public responsibilities and the standards of care implied in the CEMP to protect the citizens, mitigate city and personal negligence exposures and liabilities, and bottom line, make, have a clear conscience that you did your duty fully. Importantly, the CEMP is the rule book for meshing, this is really important, meshing the state, federal, FEMA disaster management processes and protocols with those of the city. Since the CEMP is the playbook for the disaster response, I urge you to make sure all your individual and collective counsel questions are answered in the document. A recommended way to do this is to run disaster scenarios through your own minds or with your families or coworkers before you approve the CEMP. Make sure the CEMP answers all your questions and provides you with the information, organization, contact information, processes, and resources to protect you and yours and all shoreline citizens before, during, and after the event. Make sure the ACS leadership, that's us, uh, know what via the CEMP what you expect of us. Uh, so we can plan, resource, prepare, and practice being there as you expect us to be for you and your citizens. There is such a clear expectation in the, make sure that there is such a clear expectation in the CEMP, which there is not now, by the way. And just in case the big one happens before we have or until we have an operationally viable state and federally approved CEMP, we are providing each of you a sponsored pre-flight checklist and neighborhood damage assessment data sheets so you can be prepared, ready to provide for you and yours as part of the situational awareness information to the EOC. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so next up is William Dreyer. Hello, my name is William Dwyer, and I live in, I'm a 34-year-old, 34-year resident of Briarcrest. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the Compre Comprehensive Emergency Management Plan, particularly about item K, paragraph 5, working with the EMC and the registered disaster workers set up points throughout the city to disseminate information during during a disaster. Um, our past two emergency managers have promoted this concept and starting in 2016, there was a plan in place to have the neighborhoods set up um, hubs where information could be provided to the city and the city could provide information back to the neighborhoods. Um, the plan was to have two of these hubs in place by 2017, 
four added in 2018 and four more added in 2019 for a total of 10. Um, none were added. The next emergency manager, he came up with an idea of the NEARS, which are neighborhood emergency information relay stations. And that plan was forwarded starting in 2018. Um, and the idea was to have 10 of these near relay stations in place by 2019 and all 14 in place by the 2020. None were ever put in place. So my, what I would like to see happen is that we are able to revisit this plan. In Briarcrest, we do have a communications relay station where we contact the ACS with information, situational reports. Um, but what we've never been able to do is know how the city is planning to communicate back to the neighborhoods. Um, so I hope you would take a look at this and help push this forward because I have talked at con meetings and at different neighborhood association meetings and all the neighborhoods are on board with this. They just need a little help getting it started. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Dwyer. Is there anyone else signed up for general public comments? No. All right. So there's no, going to be another opportunity to speak specifically to Resolution 498. Is there anyone else who would like to make general public comments uh, in the audience tonight? Okay. That closes public comment for now. Next up is the consent calendar. Councilmember Black. I move approval of the consent calendar. Second that. Will the clerk please conduct the votes? Councilmember Roberts? Aye. Councilmember Mork? Aye. Councilmember Ramsdale? Aye. Mayor Scully? Aye. Councilmember Poby? Aye. Councilmember McConnell? Aye. And Deputy Mayor Robertson is absent. The consent calendar passes unanimously. Next up is action item 8A, which is the public hearing and action on resolution 498. I believe Ms. Junkie is making the presentation remotely. So, Trisha, you're you're muted if you're speaking. There we go. Sorry about that. Finding the right button again. Um, yes, tonight we're here to talk about the public hearing on Resolution 498, uh, surplus property designation on the um, on the excess property acquired on the 145th project located at 14509 3rd Avenue Northeast or North. So tonight is that public hearing. Uh, tonight I do want to go over uh, the brief overview of SMC 33.55 and the requirements for the sale and disposal of real property. Uh, we'll do an overview of the property recommended for surplus. 
I will go over the questions that council did ask from the 1121 discussion and we'll review the resolution of 498 followed by the public hearing uh, and then action on resolution 498. SMC 3.55 provides the policy and the procedures required for the sale and disposal of real property. From a policy perspective, a surplus property needs to have no current or future need and would be put to a higher and better use for the community at large. It also requires that the city receive fair market value based upon a full appraisal. A public hearing is required, which we are having here tonight. And finally, council determines the method of sale for the property. Here we have a few specifics regarding the surplus portion of the parcel that was acquired earlier this year. There is approximately 11,640 square feet available and we have had a developer show interest in this parcel. A few other details to include. Uh, this is a prominent piece of property within the MUR 70 zone. Uh, its highest value for staff's recommendation is to sell to the abutting property owner with an assemblage for a larger development. Staff is then recommending that the proceeds from this sale go to phase two of the 145th corridor project and this meets the requirement of the Connecting Washington funding that was used for the purchase of the property. Council did ask the staff to come back with some information about more information or analysis on using the property as park or open safe space. We have met with parks, fleet and facilities for this analysis. On the positive side, it would create some open space within the MUR 70 zone and would provide an opportunity to protect trees in the area. On the negative side, it is a small parcel at just over one quarter of an acre. The parcel has close proximity to I-5 and 145th, which raises concerns for both noise and particulates. The, this area also has limited access and no parking. Uh, it's also worth noting that this area is within a five minute walk of Twin Ponds Park which has numerous amenities and space that can serve this area. Uh, we also looked at the opportunity for a larger park by purchasing the adjacent parcels. This could create over an acre of open space and certainly the larger size is better, but it still has many of the same limitations as the smaller park when it comes to proximity to I-5 or 145th and the limited access to the area. Based upon current market conditions, the purchase of the additional parcels is estimated at $4 million. Uh, this approach would also limit the opportunity for some non-residential redevelopment in the MUR 70 zone. Staff also looked at the opportunity to use the property for affordable housing. Again, it's small size and limited access really limit the potential as a standalone affordable housing. We did look at an alternative to require affordable housing as a condition of the sale, which is an option. Uh, we would anticipate this could reduce the value of the property, and then it also reduces the potential for non-residential development of the parcel. And as you're aware, the property was purchased with state connecting Washington grant funds. Staff has clarified the limitations and or requirements of surplusing the property. First, any proceeds from the sale of the surplus property need to go back into another Connecting Washington project or another project within the transportation appropriations. The property cannot be used as a park unless that was identified as mitigation within the environmental documentation or NEPA. 
and if the city does want to keep the parcel but convert it to another use, such as a park, or lease it for affordable housing, then the city would need to uh, compensate the state or other compensate the state or provide that funding to another eligible project for the fair market value of the property. Uh, the city does have the option to keep the property as part of the roadway right away. This is somewhat of a do-nothing alternative, uh, but this would need to be further reviewed by WashDOT to make sure it meets all requirements. Staff also looked at the viability of using the other properties along the corridor as a park property. Two of the remaining five parcels are smaller than the properly currently property currently under consideration. Therefore, they were deemed not viable. The other three are contiguous and could be a bigger park, which does make it more viable. However, the proximity to the 145th corridor uh, does make it less desirable with some of the similar concerns um, as the property in discussion tonight. And again, these additional parcels are also within a short walk of Twin Ponds Park. Uh, consistent with the previous slide, conversion to the parks would require compensation to an eligible project or back to the state. And finally, staff's brought this resolution to council now, largely because the developer has approached the city with the desire to purchase this remnant along with purchasing several other parcels to aggregate into a larger development. Uh, if this is done now, then staff can proceed with the negotiations with the developer. If council does not want to surplus the property now, but may be interested later, the opportunities may be limited or non-existent, depending on if the adjacent parcels have already developed or not. Uh, the highest and best value of the property is if it's aggregated with the other adjacent parcels as part of a larger development. Uh, because of the size and the access constraint, there may not be an opportunity to surplus it in the future as a standalone parcel. Moving on to the proposed resolution 498 does have several components. First, it declares the property at 14509 3rd Avenue North as surplus. It authorizes a negotiated sale with the abutting property owner. It also identifies the need for a TCE for construction of the corridor and the interchange project. And it identifies that the property will be sold at fair market value based upon an independent appraisal. Our next steps, again, is a public hearing for tonight, followed by council discussion and action. And with that, I recommend that you open the public hearing. Thank you, Ms. Junkie. I'd like to open the public hearing. Public testimony is limited to three minutes per person testifying on this agenda item. Ms. Simulchek-Smith, has anyone signed up? Yes. Um, David Cohan is first. Okay. Uh, good evening, Mayor Skelly, uh, council members. Uh, my name is David Cohannon, and uh, I reside in Seattle, Washington. Um, I'm here to provide some comments on uh, this resolution 498 uh, and the surplusing of the excess property at 14509 3rd Avenue North. I represent Synergy Construction. Uh, we are working with the development team that is putting this project together. And uh, it's a I'm putting together a substantive project on the parcels that are adjacent to the land under discussion. I think it's been brought up before. Um, and as has been discussed, we are our, our group is interested in uh, uh, purchasing the surplus land. 
Um, that lot on its own, as I think has been analyzed, uh, doesn't offer a, a lot of opportunity. Some park, but you have park nearby. Um, the access and parking issues kind of limit what can be done with it, and it's not a huge lot. It's a quarter of an acre. But the properties adjacent to it could take full advantage and put this lot to its highest and best use. You know, we're in a position where that lot would add 25% more land to what we have available to us to work with. It would add 33% more frontage facing the highway, which is a prime advertiser for our project. It gives us the room to do additional uses as opposed to perhaps just a single. We could look at affording affordable housing as a component, senior housing as a component, greater retail as a component, uh, not just have it be a residential project, a market rate residential project. Um, I, I think that's really it. Just we could really take full advantage of that park or park land, turn it into something that we are uh, uh, designing toward and uh, maintaining, taking off your hands, and making a real addition to such a beautiful and prime area of development uh, that has been given to Shoreline by the in incoming light rail station. So let's take advantage of it for you. Let's play in your sandbox, if you would, please. Thank you. Is there another speaker? Um, Charles Chung signed up, but I received an email from him saying that um, he was going to let his colleagues speak on behalf of him. Do you want me to? I, I don't need another three no, it's three minutes per speaker. So is, is that the only public comment? It was the only um, two signed up for the public hearing. All right. Is there anyone online who would like to speak? If so, please raise your hand, which is done either on the Zoom thing or if you're on the phone by star nine, correct? Correct. All right. Let's give it just a minute for that. Nobody? No one. Okay. Thank you. I'll close the public hearing. And this is an action item, so we generally start with a motion. Um, so I move to um, the motion that's in the, written up in our agenda here. I'm not reading it right now. All right. That's where it, we're starting. All right. So that 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 is that is a motion to approve resolution nine number four ninety eight yes. as proposed. Yes. All right. Yes. Is there a second to council board? A second motion? for discussion. Second. So is that two seconds? Uh, would you like to speak to your motion or questions? Um, I actually had some questions. I just wanted to get started. Yeah. <laughs> so I I got confused on in the uh, item on page four where it's writing on under the the question dealing with that the mayor had sent in about uh is there an opportunity for the city to acquire the adjacent parcels on third avenue northeast for a larger park open space and that's answered and then it also said staff also discussed that from an economic development perspective these combined lots including the proposed surplus property are one of the few locations within a MUR 70 zone with a high potential for non-residential use non-residential uses are a key component in the sub area plans whereas a large park open space could be placed somewhere else my my question is is uh is the object of this, if once we sell it, 
for the developer to make this into retail or is that something the city would propose to do? I, I, first of all, I apologize that I failed to turn on my uh, video during my presentation. And I'll also mention that I do have Nathan Dom and uh, Nick Bohr with Park Fleet and Facilities and Sarah uh, Lane with Administrative Services available to answer any questions. Uh, and I think that I'll let Nathan answer that uh, question if he is available. I don't know if I see him on. He's headed over right now. He's headed over in person? No, uh, oh. Zoom. Okay, gotcha. There we go, I see him, okay. Mr. Dom, you're muted. The, the mute thing isn't on, but we're not hearing you. Yeah, he's he's unmuted in Zoom. So right. it's it's a, it's a it's a microphone thing, I think. I I, I suspect if I suspect the wrong microphone is selected. Mm -hmm. Oh. I can perhaps answer the question, um, uh, Council. Uh, the the city would not be involved, as, in my understanding of, of once we surplus it, then the city is no longer involved in any development of, of the parcel. Um, so that would be what I anticipate. So, so would the city get a, a larger value if we purchased those properties and then sold it as opposed to a single entity? When we're constrained under state law to do that kind of a deal. We're not allowed to, well, I suppose if we negotiated the purchase and we didn't use condemnation, then that's a possibility. But since already one of the parcels was condemned for us to then try to assimilate properties and then sell them for a larger economic gain, um, could run afoul of some some previous decisions of the court. Thank you. Other questions or comments, uh, Councilmember? Thank you, Mayor. <clears throat> uh, during the presentation, I think Ms. Junkie mentioned that there's no current or future need. And then um, through the presentation, she also mentioned that in August the city was approached. I want to know which one came first, whether staff realized this person is no need at all after they were approached. Staff had identified this parcel for surplus before being approached by the developer. This was something that had been discussed several months ago when we were going through design and looking at how we could use this. We did meet with Parks, Fleet, and Facilities uh, before the um, developer approached us about the viability of this as a park and if it was useful as a park. We met with, also met with uh, economic development and talked about would this be of a, a higher and better use if it could be aggregated. So the strategy of aggregating it with an abutting property was in place before being approached by the developer. I appreciate that, thank you. And I had to take a drive to see the place after our conversation two weeks ago. And the reason I say this is, we want Shoreline to be a livable place, livable. That is, you're able to live, work, and do whatever you want to do within the city. Now we talk about, you know, the light rail is coming, everybody needs to get into the house. We don't just want to get people in the house. What if they don't get out to catch the train anymore? 
and they are supposed to live at home and work from home. How are they going to survive? So it's not about just getting, I, I, I totally disagree and don't want the pastor to be surplus for uh, any affordable housing. I'm even yet to see affordable housing yet. So I would just let it be as it is. But what I'm curious about is if we do nothing, I, I saw in the, in the presentation, if you can just remind me a little bit, if we do nothing, what happens to the land? Do we still own it? Do we still have it? Yes, my understanding is if we do nothing, the land remains as part of city right of way. Uh, we would still be responsible for maintaining it. Um, but that is something we would want to confirm with WashDOT um, and our funding partners uh, before we could commit to that. But that is my understanding. Thank you. And also uh, through the presentation, you had mentioned about parks. I don't think it necessarily have to be a park. It could be an open green space. Just a walkable space where people can just get out from the buildings around and just walk and get back in. We just want people to be able to live. Not necessarily have to drive five minutes or walk five minutes to another park, but the environment in which they live in should be friendly and, and green. That's all I have for now. Thank you, Councilmember Roberts. Thank you, Mayor. My uh, inclination is the same as Councilmember, my good Councilmember Hobie. Um, who I think broadly in the ask the well ask the question I did. I mean, what is what happens if we do nothing? And it sounds like we need more. I, it sounds like there's more information needed if we do not take action today or decide not to take action today. My, the other question, sort of related to that um, question, is what kind of conditions can we put on the sale of, afford of a surplus property? Are we able to put conditions requiring affordable housing, uh, even if it's not city uh, pro uh, property that the city builds affordable housing on? Uh, I mean, are there ways to stipulate what happens with, with that property? Are there deed restrictions? Are there to require elements um, that we would like to see on any kind of surplus property? I would like to defer that one. Uh, Ms. King, can you answer that question? Uh, uh, yes, I can, Ms. Junkie. Um, I, I, the restrictions on the property are that at some point there needs to be a determination made as to whether the, the use of the property meets the underlying purpose of the funds that were given to the city in order to acquire the property. So it, it's my understanding that we could put restrictions on it, and we could um, keep it for a park. We could do a variety of things, but in doing so, we would need to then pay back the fair market value of the property um, back to WashDOT or put it back into a transportation dedicated fund. Um, with respect to putting a limitation on affordable housing, I think the same analysis would need to be done because under standard surplus, you sell it for market value for the appraised value if it was determined by WashDOT that placing that restriction on it decreased the value, then in likely, all likelihood we would need to make up the difference um, of the reduced value. However, I am not certain that WashDOT in its final surplus review, I'm not sure how they would um, proceed on that. We have not had the opportunity to have 
in-depth discussions on these kind of variety of ideas with WashDOT. Um, so staff will continue to do that, but um, based on my understanding of the restrictions on the use of funds from the gas tax, then that was, that's what I would anticipate is we'll have to pay back anything other than the fair market value. Uh, thank you. I, I mean, before I, my recommendation to my colleagues is uh, to oppose this now and learn more and hear back from the city staff and their, their discussions with WASHDOT before we make any kind of determination about surplus. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you. Councilmember McConnell. You're, you're muted, Councilmember. Um, I lowered the hand, but didn't unmute myself. Um, the attorney mentioned the limitation of uh, what we can do with funding, and, and that's what it's always going to come back to, regardless of whether we surplus it now or later, correct? Um, I'll finish, because there's probably a few other things I want to have answered. So here's the way I look at with a willing purchaser who's actually made an offer of what he considers fair market value, which is more than what we were told originally that they felt the property was worth. Uh, it's obvious that the, the, um, the, uh, the, the company who's making this offer could use that property to assemble their uh, development and as many um, actually as all people who have who live in the area have said the access to that parcel is very very uh, limited um, and I actually read dangerous so uh, so with the limitations to funding which we just got in the slide the, the all the bullet points are pertinent but one says cannot be used as a park unless it was identified as part of NEPA. And, uh, and so I'm just thinking whether we wait or not, those funds aren't going to be freely used to acquire that property for a park because it looks like there's a, a lot of conditions how that money is going to be spent. Uh, having a property in MUR 70, I think it's a better use of taxpayer money the city money to buy parcels that are zoned a lot less than MUR 70. Uh, there's, you know, if we really need to actively ask staff to start looking for single family zoning properties that, you know, would be a great location uh, or even MUR 35 or 45, that's where, I mean, to buy MUR 70 when there's lots of other, you know, probably more affordable parcels and probably without these conditions I I am not inclined to to turn this uh, uh, to, to say no to this resolution uh, and I think that was the biggest bullet point that I want to cover thank you very much mayor thank you councilmember other questions or comments councilmember uh, Ramstone yeah th uh, thank you mayor I just like to make a couple comments um, uh, First is I, I, I do appreciate my colleagues' uh, comments. I think you all of you bring up some like very valid points. Uh, you know the.
the standard uh, for public access to public open spaces is about an acre per 100 people. You know, so uh, right right now, uh, Shoreline's got right, right, approximately 400 acres of uh, public open space, and so we're according to like the kind of standard of, of what the American Planning Association um, uh, recommends. We are at this point about 200 acres shy of of you know meeting that kind of American Planning Association standard. So, um, in normal circumstances, I'd be saying yes. Let's just grab onto any any kind of land that we can. Um, I'm, I'm somewhat uh, hesitant to support. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm going to vote in favor of selling the um, uh, uh, plot for the reason that, you know, one of the standards of, of, um, of livability in a community is to have access to public open space and um, access to activities in the public open space within a 10-minute walk. And for me, the the my staff brought up the issue that that the uh, the Twin Ponds Park is a six-minute walk from. The, um, that location to me that that's that to me that that seems like a sufficient um, sufficient access to public open space that that, that would be good for the community um, I uh, um, uh, so I would like to see staff I'm really glad that uh, council uh, uh, council member McConnell brought up the issue of, like having staff be a little more aggressive in like trying to find uh, 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 Lots within a 10-minute uh, kind of walk of some of these high-density MUR 70 locations that would be more affordable for the city and also offer um, both uh, passive and active opportunities for uh, members of those high-density areas because we do know that that um, if if people are living in just high-density areas without access to public open space, it's going to affect their mental health um, and uh, quality of life. So I I don't think that this particular lot is going to be um, uh, you know the highest and best use as as a park, but I really would like to see staff kind of look at those MUR 30, uh, 35 areas um, to be a little more aggressive in trying to find um, whether it's pocket parks or or, or something that that can provide um, access walk, walkable access to some of these high density uh, developments. Uh, thank you, Mayor. Thank you, Councilmember. I'd like to make a couple of comments, and we'll go back around again. Um, I had a couple of questions for starters. It, it looks to me like this is the. Oh, yeah, I see Councilman Roberts. Um, it looks to me like this is the entire parcel. So I'm wondering why we bought it in the first place, if we're just turning around to surplus it. It's not the entire not, parcel. Okay. The entire parcel was larger. We needed uh, a portion of it. It just, this is what, the, what we're showing on the diagram is what's remaining. Okay, thank you. And I want to make sure I understand the, the money side of it. So we have to sell it at fair market value if we sell it now. If we convert it to a park, my understanding is we then have to make up the difference well, we'd have to actually pay the fair market value of it back. So that's a, we're essentially buying a million plus dollar park. That's accurate. I see Ms. King nodding. Got Correct. It. So Correct. if we were to do nothing, we don't have to do that yet. But at some point in the future, when we decided what to do with it, we would then have to pay the fair market value at that time or the fair market value as of now. That's a good uh, question, and unfortunately, I don't feel that I can adequately give you a, an answer at this point. Um, I think that that determination would likely come from WashDOT, and they probably have some parameters around when that valuation would occur. Um, my guess is it's somewhere before closing out the funding for this project, but I don't know exactly um, what that valuation would be and when it would be done. Thank you. That tells me what I needed to know. Um, so I don't. I think we need to rethink 
what a park is in MUR 70 a bit. If we're talking about vehicular parking, we've lost the threat. I mean, that, that's not what we're looking for here. It's not going to be Central Park. It's not going to be ball fields and, and wetlands and nature trails. It's not going to happen. But on equity grounds, I think folks who live in MUR 70 deserve to be able to see trees from their window. And if we're talking about we should put it in the less expensive areas, we're talking about putting it way out in the single family zones where we already have parks. And I appreciate the Twin Ponds, which is a great park, is right around the corner. But it's a big corner, and it's kind of a long ways, and that particular site is surrounded by what right now looks like a clear cut in a forest, and is going to look like an entirely dense urban area. And for me, part of our original vision is that it not get developed that way. And I'm not sure sort of what happened, and we're going to be hopefully discussing it at our retreat to see if we can get a, get a handle on it. But I think all of our vision was that there were pockets of green space, remaining mature trees, places to just see open land and dirt, places to go for a walk, right? So I don't, on those grounds, I don't want to let this go. On the flip side of it is, I, along with Councilmember Proby, I went there too, and this is not going to be an active recreation park. It's not going to be a place you take your sleeping baby because that baby won't sleep. It's not going to be a place anybody goes. I'm not as worried about the SIPTED. I think we can manage that, and we've got a parcel next to it which is going to be left undeveloped already. So to the extent we have septet issues, we're going to have them anyway. Um, I would vote to retain this if it were free. I would vote to retain this up to a certain quantum. I'm really on the fence if we're buying a million-plus acre parcel that is right next to the freeway like it is. I mean, it's really not well-suited for it. Um, I, I honestly, I've been more on the fence about this than I have a lot of things in the last few years. Because it also has mature trees, and not of these, none of these other parcels that I'm aware of have that. So if we buy a different parcel a ways away, then we lose the ability to get you know, an existing bunch of, uh, of mature firs. So in any event, that's not a concise answer. I, I'm looking forward to hear what my other, other council members have to say on the next round. I think Councilmember Roberts was, uh, well, no, sorry, Councilmember Mork was nice. Uh, so one of the public comments we got, or one of the letters that we received, mm -hmm. uh, talked about the freeway and encampments near the freeway and concern that uh, people would encamp in this area. And my question deals with if there is a uh, issue or an accident there, whose liability, if we do nothing, whose liability is it? And uh, where, where does that put the city? The best of my understanding, if that retains is uh, city property, it would be our liability and our responsibility. That is correct. Um, there is some immunity granted to cities for park recreation purposes, but if we held it and did nothing, um, kept that as just an inactive space, we would hold it in a proprietary capacity and then we would not be subject to that immunity grant for recreational purposes. Thank you. I, I share my colleagues' views about uh, people's desire and uh, right to be able to see trees. I also share uh, the mayor's concern that this particular location right next to the freeway may not be the best place to go forest bathing. Uh, so <laughs> I can appreciate the, the, uh, the constraint there. But another issue that we have heard repeatedly from uh, the citizens is the need, the desire for retail, and uh, retail that we can get in the city, retail that would be around the light rail stations. Uh, how far is this 
from the light rail station if it was retail? Is this something a place that people could easily get to and avail those services? Yes, it's within a quarter mile. It's less than a quarter mile from the light rail station. The light rail station is you know, directly across from the uh, the freeway. It would be within a quarter mile. Uh, they, and they could easily access it, right, over the 148th yes. bridge? Okay, thank you. Either the 148th bridge or across 145th. Thank you. Councilmember Roberts. Uh, thank you, Mayor. This is a good conversation. I think that the part of the challenge is that this is not, as others have mentioned, this is not the ideal location for a open space. Um, however, I mean, as the mayor mentioned and others have mentioned, we have a our, the designs of our buildings currently, and this is I brought this up before, is that we have buildings the, the building code sort of requires a certain type of building to go high we have um we have these long hallways in these in our multifamily buildings with so that we have units that get maybe one or if they're lucky sort of two sides uh, uh, solar access from two sides and the buildings themselves the design of the buildings are such that it, they're massive. They're sort of big in scale, and so and there's no oppor real opportunity to sort of have and keep and mature keep mature trees within the building footprint. I mean, it is, I think you can sort of be lucky to have one or two trees sort of on the side. And this is where the Shoreline Trees Preservation Society has sort of been talking to us over over the last few years about the challenges of trying to design around mature trees. And we understand that within our MER 70 zone, we have said that we recognize the need to sort of develop that property and there's challenges especially around parking and trees and access. And so when we're trying to think about green space, and I think the mayor, you said it properly, we need to make sure that there are pocket parks within our that are most intense uses, um, whether they're naturally sort of occurring because of the, when this came up around the 185th station, I recognized that there were certain parcels that may not be developable because they're sort of too wet, um, also sort of along the freeway as it happens to be. And I mean, so they may, I mean, the developer may not want to purchase those properties and we may sort of sort of have them or they may be available sort of by default in some ways. But we have this opportunity. The it's going to be expensive the point is that it's going to be expensive to purchase parcels within the MUR seventy zones. If we want pocket parks, we're gonna to have to pay or we're either gonna to have to pay for top dollar or we're gonna to have to figure out a way in the development code to require more sort of not just open space and not just public open space, which is we do currently require, but we're going to have to do something more to sort of have those patches of green space that is not required under in our code. And but, uh, the challenge with this, if this was not this parcel, I think it would be in this location. I think this would be a very different story, but, um, 
there are many reasons why, I mean, as the, was said in public comment today, uh, there is a um, visibility on, on uh, 145th is important uh, for any kind of retail location, which is going to be much better there than it is going to be on um, 147, 147th where the, or uh, 146th. Um, so there are challenges there. The, um, but when we talk about sort of access from the light rail station, or at least direct from the light rail station, this is not, I mean, this is a, a long quarter mile. Um, it's going to be closer, probably closer to uh, maybe just a quarter mile. I mean, just a quarter mile. I mean, a full quarter mile from the station uh, across the freeway, which we have identified as not being desirable to walk across in fact so undesirable to walk across we have put we have put on our legislative priorities building a bridge to make access to the station easier so i just w wish we could have more information we knew have this open questions with wash dots in terms of how we can dispose of some of these properties we know we need affordable housing and so i'd like to know how we can get affordable housing on our some of these surplus properties because it sounds like and it feels like we are very limited in what we can do and i i just think we i'd rather have answers to some of these questions before moving forward and saying that we're going to surplus these properties thank you thank you mayor thank you councilmember mcconnell thank you mayor um years ago before we started rezoning I tried to uh, red flag this exact issue of zoning first and then wishing we could afford to buy properties in some of these really high dense um, areas. So, and it was around Paramount Park extending it. And instead we, uh, we didn't have the vision and we up zoned a lot around the perimeter. This is what's already happened in our MUR 70. So, uh, as a, as a, I mean, the, the horse is already out of the barn. It's really going to be impossible to think, wish, wish we had done this. Uh, I want to remind everybody that even at 145 per square foot, which was the original suggestion from staff, that's 1.6 million. It's almost 1.7 million. And now with a potential offer at one, uh, I wrote it down, 165 per square foot, that's gonna be hovering right under 2 million. So we're already looking at a property that we may hold off uh, and not do anything that's worth almost $2 million. And if we then, decide to do one thing or another, basically MUR 70 is just going to get more and more expensive. And, uh, uh, and and I know that because I was actually on the phone for over an hour with, uh, with somebody. As I said, I have a piece of property. I'm very well aware of what's kind of going on underneath, you know, the, the actual things that we're seeing. And so this, if you think about MUR 70, we've all seen these maps in the area that we're talking about. It's MUR 70 all the way up and down 145th. And as staff said, there's probably better 
I mean, if you've really got to do it at MUR 70, a purchase for a park, there's property still yet to not have not to be surplus yet that are way more um, walk friendly, you know, um, walkable to get to because even going across to Seattle is just, you know, unless we have a really decent um, pathway across 145th, I, I would not consider any walkable park or open space into Seattle uh, something, number one, that we can control, but number two, that's even accessible. So when you think of, look at Twin Ponds, uh, you know, we've all been in this city for a long time. Twin Ponds may be one of the closest uh, areas that we have open space uh, that is not, you know, that butts up pretty closely to MUR 70. So again, whether whether you're trying to save money or whether you can't make a decision, the, the value of that lot is just going to keep going up. And, you know, since the attorney's not sure what we're going to be stuck with, it's already close to $2 million. So the longer we put this off, you know, I think it can come back to hurt us that we can't make a decision. Again, um, you know, I I fought really hard to keep, keep some of the zoning from getting um, out of hand, but it's already done. And, and for us to buy a $2 million piece of property that is uh, not quite two lot sizes in an area that you know, you, two of you have gone right to to the place. I drive by it all the time. That is just not some place I would want to go forest bathing, <laughs> or or even walk to. I would rather go that extra, you know, difficult way to get to Twin Ponds because that park is at least very peaceful and quiet. Um, anyway, I could go on and on about a. About this, but uh, if you know if this fails, anybody is welcome to talk to me directly about what's going on in MUR seventy and what we what we're up against. Um, thank you, Councilmember Pobe. Thank you, Mayor. I was a little surprised that um, my colleague just mentioned that you know um, you know we have other trees around. There are things that trees provide that are intangible. We will never see the value because we are not able to possibly quantify them. But what I'm getting to is I went back to review the staff report. No city money had gone into rent to purchase this. What we are saying, based on staff report, is whatever comes out of it must go into federally funded projects. And staff is suggesting 145th uh, second phase project for the returns or for the sales money to go back into the project. Uh, in conclusion, I just want to say, let's not fix what is not broken. Who is pushing us to do anything? Again, I'm looking at we want to get people into the homes. Great. But let us give them a livable environment. The space that we are not talking about, they have to walk to the park. Agreed, you have to walk. It's even an ex a form of exercise. But the fact that there is something green alone in the environment in which you live in makes it even better to survive and to live in such an environment. Not necessarily a park. We, we get that. We understand that. And so, wh why are we even pushing to do this? I, I, I guess I need more understanding. And it's not about 
I'm speaking for myself, not able to take a decision. No, it's because the, the proposal, the, the, I need something competitive to be able to decide, and I'm just thrown back and forth, nothing conclusive. Thank you. Ms. King. I just want to correct, and it, and it could be that we, we um, made a mistake, but the money is not going into a federal program. The money has to go into state transportation programs, and it's my understanding that uh, Public Works had planned on taking excess parcels. When we acquire property, sometimes we have to acquire the whole parcel because it's a complete um, acquisition due to the impact. So we knew that we were going to be acquiring more property than we necessarily needed for the actual improvements on 145th. And the intent would then be to surplus off the excess so that then that money could be used as matching funds further down on the next phase. But that's for, for our projects and or state projects, not for federal projects. So I did want to correct that. Well, thank you, because I'm reading exactly what's in the report, page five of the 11 page. It says, use on other federally funded transportation projects. That, I believe that that um, was in the first staff report, and the intent was to try to start clarifying what the restrictions on the funds were. But I, that's staff's error. So I apologize, and I just wanted to make that um, correction. Understood. Thank you. We issued a clarifying memo on that uh, inconsistency on federal funding versus the Connecting Washington uh, state funding. Further Thank you, Mayor. Um, the other uh, question, I have a question regarding uh, how this money would be used for, uh, with the sale of this property would be used for phase two and phase three on the 145th improvements. I know that, um, you know, I live in Westminster Triangle, and I know that, that to be able to get access to the light rail station, um, at this point, it's, it's uh, you're taking your life into your hands if you want to try to walk down 145th uh, to the light rail station or, or ride a bike. So um, uh, I'm, I'm concerned about how like if we're not selling um, some of this uh, some of these uh, lots to be used for um, uh, phase two and phase three um, what kind of delays that will create um, and with the city in terms of, of implementing and developing phase two and phase three's 145th Street um, improvements thank you so I can't quantify a timeline on what it would take as far as a delay I can't say that we are not fully funded for right-of-way acquisition in the second phase or for construction in the second phase. So these would move us in that direction. But even with this sale, that would not be the uh, final funding we would need. Um, it would just serve as match to be able to go after um, some other grants, such as a federal uh, raise grant uh, in hopes of being able to further fund those next two phases. Thank you. Any further questions or comments? All right, the vote is yes or no on proposal uh, resolution 498, which would be to sell this parcel uh, for a fair market value and to open negotiations with the developer of the parcels that contiguous to it. Will the clerk please call the vote? Mayor Scully? Aye. Councilmember McConnell? Aye. Councilmember Poby? No. Councilmember Roberts? No. Councilmember Mork? Aye. Councilmember Ramsdale. Aye. All right, the vote passes four to two with uh, one council member absent. Next up is study item 9A, the council overview on snow and ice event planning and operations. 
I believe Mr. Newkirk is presenting remotely. That is correct. Good evening, Mayor, Council Members. Um, while I did not anticipate having this conversation with you to fall right on the heels of an actual event, but Mother Nature seemed to have other plans for us. So uh, we will be having that conversation this evening. And with that, I'll go ahead and get started. Uh, first up is just a quick agenda, and tonight I'll, I'll just share a little bit of our guiding principles for event management during the snow and ice events, as well as how we prioritize service, some of the personnel, scheduling equipment, and supplies and facilities uh, components that make up the event response. Uh, there are environmental considerations, of course, to contend with, and then a brief discussion on future capabilities, and then uh, wrap-up conclusion and then um, open for council comment and discussion questions. So our first um, guiding principle, did I not share the screen? My apologies. Sorry about that. Can you see the screen now? Yes, sir. All right, let me back up just real quickly here. So just to catch back up, um, again, the agenda, just real quickly, going over some of the guiding principles, our service priorities, other components, etc. And then one of the first guiding principles is to be prepared for the events that, that do happen on an annual basis. And so how we plan for this is we have, hold annual training sessions, which we call our snow school, and these are usually held in late October or early November. And as you can see from the picture on the left of this slide, that we have a good attendance. And this year uh, we held our school at, on November 3rd and had over 40 uh, city employees participate in the classroom component. And then there's a follow-on sessions where we do actual hand-on exercises where the staff members get the opportunity to re-familiarize themselves with plows. Uh, and the graphic or a picture to the right is showing the tire chain station where people are getting instruction on how to install chains, how to tighten them up, and then there are other facets where they get uh, run through on the plows and its operations as well. And then that is culminated with actual driving uh, where the plow routes are uh, driven dry with the vehicles so the plow operators can get re-familiarized with the routes. And I think it is important to note that uh, this year we had over a quarter of our uh, snow school attendees, this was their first time participating in the snow school. So it's important why we hold this on an annual basis, just with natural staff turnover, promotions, and, and other things like that. Um, so another component of event readiness is just ensuring that uh, we have a good staffing plan, work assignments, and then as well as the management control of the event. And to do this, we do have a unified response um, structure that we use. We emulate the incident command structure uh, that is adopted by emergency management principles. And at the center of the graphic is what we call the snow boss or the incident commander. And this is the individual that coordinates uh, in public works the on-the-ground operations uh, for the road 
staff and then also coordinating with the parks facility and fleet staff for other services within the city and then staying in contact with the leadership team to ensure that uh, all priorities within the city are being met or objectives and then uh, additionally the snow boss is also through this group uh, coordinating with our external agencies like King County Metro, the school district, and, and other uh, agencies like police and fire as well for emergency services. Uh, a final guiding principle is after the event is winding down or concluded, we want to make sure that we're returning to normal operations as quickly as possible. And this particular picture shows uh, a salt delivery truck that has come from eastern Washington and is providing a, a resupply of salt at the Hamlin facility in one of the storage bins. And additionally, we, we also um, make sure that the other equipment where repairs on the plows were needed or other supply materials are taken care of. That's part of that event conclusion. And then a big component of the event conclusion is doing a debrief from the event and then discussing what went well, what we learned, and what we want to improve on going forward. So within that structure, we do have priorities of service. And so for public works, it's primarily the street network where we focus uh, most of our attention. And this particular map is showing our primary and secondary routes. And this map is also on the city's website, so uh, residents can also see where, where the priority streets are within the city that the, we attend to first. The green routes are the primaries, and the more um, gold-colored routes are the secondaries. And these are the streets that carry the most amount of uh, vehicle traffic, and thus they have been prioritized as such for, for first attention. And about half of the city's public street network on, on the, is covered by the priority or the primary and secondary routes. And residential streets are not classified, uh, but they are the lowest volume streets and often have the limited or poor access and are, are plowed last or not at all depending on, on the event. Now, we recognize and do acknowledge that this can be very frustrating for our residents and this is one of the areas where we get the most complaints about the, the snow and ice services. Uh, for example, though, during this current snow event, the, the residential re streets receive limited plow services during the initial phase of the event. And this was due, as uh, uh, our city manager alluded to at the beginning of this evening's meeting with his report, that we had heavy, wet, laden snow coupled with high winds. And those high winds and heavy snow, that combination brought down a lot of trees, big branches, power lines, phone and cable lines. And so during the initial phase of the event, we were supporting um, getting the access to the utility crews so they could restore these essential services to the community. And I, I will say just finally on, on this particular priorities of service, it is also helpful to know that we prioritize and deploy our limited uh, resources to accommodate those drivers and vehicles that are prepared for winter driving conditions. And this is why we highly encourage our citizens to help us serve them better by being prepared for annual winter driving conditions. Uh, another 
a big priority of service in, and services provided is by our parks, facilities, and, and fleet group. And within the facilities areas that are prioritized is City Hall, Spartan Recreation Center, uh, Richmond Highlands, as well as the Interurban Trail. And so parking lots and the sidewalks for these facilities are plowed first. And then as time and resources allow, park access is uh, other parks are attended to with uh, access to the bathrooms and uh, ADA ramps being prioritized. Now, if we do have a longer event, though, these are the, this is the same pool of staff members that we would draw upon to provide relief uh, drivers and plow drivers for the public works staff like we had to do during the 2019 snowpocalypse event. That was a two-week duration event, as many of you will recall, and, and we did have to draw on that resource uh, with parks and facilities and fleet staff. Another priority of service that came to the light during that snowpocalypse event and has been a higher posture that the city has taken is uh, through our community services uh, division, we are working actively to provide emergency severe weather shelter uh, for those residents who need it, as well as outreach to the, the unhoused. And we've been able to partner thus far with St. Dunstan's Church, and they have, as dur even during this uh, current event, they have provided some sheltering services. And this is an example of how the city, as we continue to grow in population, our responses to the community could continue to evolve as, as well to meet those needs. So our personnel that we have available, we have our streets, grounds, and CECRT personnel who are the primary responders that will deploy for servicing the public right-of-way, as well as debris removal, road closures and openings, and other things that are related to right-of-way, keeping that open. We do draw upon our wastewater staff uh, as needed to fill vacancies or other support roles for larger events. And then if it's uh, needed, we'll draw on the deeper pool of public works, other public works staff members to help fill some of those critical roles. And I think I already mentioned that parks and facilities, they're the number of staff that are available, um, they have their primary responsibilities and duties, but if needed, they can be drawn upon to help staff up for or provide relief for a larger event. And then scheduling for the event is always challenging given the uncertainty of the weather forecast as the recent event illustrates. Um, where the forecast can be wrong and we end up with conditions much worse than predicted. So nonetheless though, we do uh, plan accordingly to the event. We also plan accordingly to the uh, expertise and knowledge that staff have based on past events and what we uh, ha sense may happen within the city. And as this uh, slide would illustrate, just for lighter events, we do have a lighter response. And then for heavier or longer duration response, we'll have more staff available. And it's more likely where we'll have a, a full 24-hour um, staff response uh, for, for these shifts. However, with the staffing challenges in the Northwest uh, weather, th there is some challenging uh, challenges that we have to confront. And as you can see from this graphic, it can be challenging any given year, planning year to year, what we may receive for the snowfall. Uh, 
I mean, fortunately, um, our area, we're different. We're not as in the snow region like Chicago, Boston, New York. So our, our snow duration isn't a full winter season. It's usually these short one-off two events that occur over our, our winter months. And that makes it very difficult to, to plan for. But I think, as you'll notice on this graphic as well, that we are see, starting to see, at least over the last decade, an increase in the volume of snow that uh, is occurring within our city and within our region. And many are attributing this to the change in climate or clim climate changes that are occurring. And while these events are still relatively infrequent, frequent, they do seem to be increasing intensity and a little bit longer in duration for the individual event. So that's something that we're, we're very mindful of and starting to see and plan for going forward. And so to help us in that regard, we, we also have our fleet of equipment to provide the operational services within the public works, uh, public right-of-way, as well as within the uh, facilities, parks, operations. Uh, the picture at the top of this slide shows our fleet of snowplows that are available to service the public right-of-way with two large plows that are primarily assigned to the priority one and two routes and then four smaller plows that are assigned to support the two main vehicles or deploy to residential uh, areas as needed or to service the down trees and, and other things that are that are going on. We also have a couple of backhoes that can be used to load salt or deployed to help remove larger debris from the right-of-way as needed. And we have a small bobcat piece of equipment that is used by the public works staff in the yard as needed to keep it open and clear. And then the parks um, and facilities staff have available to them a snowcat and this was uh, the vehicle all the way to the right, lower right of the, this slide. And it services City Hall and can be deployed to the um, interurban trail, as well as that the park staff also has two pickup trucks that have plows and spreaders that can go and service the park's uh, parking lots and also support the interurban trail clearing as, as well. And of course, if needed, there's always an option where we can rent additional equipment uh, if there is breakage or other needs that uh, we haven't been able to meet. The next component uh, of our planning and prioritization is making sure that we have adequate supplies on hand. And so we have a good uh, supply of road salt to start every event and then we'll resupply at the end of an event as well as de-icer and we also have uh, a good supply on hand at the start of the season for tire chains, cutting blades, and things like that that uh, we, we know we'll need to go or will be worn out and we'll have to replace at some point during the event. Now, we do acknowledge and understand that road salt and the calcium chloride, our liquid de-icer, prod are products that can uh, damage the environment. And so this was one of those concerns that was raised during the Salmon Safe certification and one that we did attend to and I will expand upon on the next slide. All right, Mr. Newkirk, thank you very much for the detail on this. We've all read the staff report and if we can focus on sort of hitting the highlights and keeping moving, I would appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Mayor. I'll, I'll keep us moving along a little quicker. So just real quickly to minimize the negative impacts on uh, the uh, 
from our chemical usage. We have hired consultants to help uh, us uh, evaluate our snow and ice control plan, and we've updated that as a result. We do staff training and regular maintenance and calibration on our chemical deploying equipment, and then, of course, keep up on the technical literature as well as sending staff out to specialized training so we can stay in current uh, with best management practices for winter operations. We uh, also uh, operate from the Hamlin Maintenance Facility. That is our command center where we direct the, the operations. That's where the equipment is housed, and that is where the majority of the supplies are kept as well. We do, however, do have service challenges uh, within uh, the city for the snow and ice events. And one of those challenges is compact snow and ice. And this is where the snow and ice is bonded to the roadway surface, and it is extremely hard to remove. And that's illustrated by the picture here to the left, where we have one of our plows up on Fifth Avenue near the Ridgecrest Theater. Uh, that is a difficult, um, difficult service area because of the nature of the plows that we use. We have hard plastic and rubber polyethylene plow blades that glide but don't cut the snow and ice. Uh, and we can't really use steel plow blades for uh, cutting the compact snow and ice because of the irregular nature of the road surface and some of the obstacles like valve boxes, manholes, and, and things like that. And so why we use this product is illustrated to the picture to the right the vehicle has hit a manhole cover and it's damaged the vehicle. Fortunately, this was not one of our plows or our operations, but it is one of those things that we're very mindful of that we don't want to risk our plows and uh, keep them deployed rather than have them damaged by some of the obstacles. Uh, another service challenge is our crowded residential streets. And as you can see by the photograph, there's many obstacles that our drivers have to attend to when we get into the residential streets. There's parked cars, there's cars stuck sideways, backing down uh, hills. And so our plow operators really have a challenge going into these particular areas, and let alone when there's pedestrians navigating the streets at the same time. Uh, another service challenge are our bus routes and bus stops. Fortunately for the King County Metro route, our primary and secondary route covers the, the snow route that they deem their emergency route. So we are uh, lined up one for one for the King County Metro emergency snow routes. That is not the case with the Shoreline School District bus routes. And we service approximately 50% uh, of the bus routes uh, for or we do a line up with, but there's another 50% where we do not line up, and that's primarily the residential streets. And I think as the last slide and explanation showed, uh, that due to the nature of the narrowness of the streets, the same challenges that the city has with its plows confront the school district with deploying their buses on the residential streets. Um, to help us continue to uh, evolve and grow with our services. There are future capabilities that will be coming online in, over the next couple of years. One of the most exciting ones is the new Ballinger Maintenance Facility. This will provide us with covered salt storage. 
It will double our liquid de-icer storage capacity and it will give us the ability to generate our own liquid salt brine material. This uh, is very important uh, from a supply point of view, but also from an environmental point of view, that we will be able to reduce our chloride footprint and impact on the environment by about one-third by using this particular product. And then uh, a little bit on the good news front, additionally, uh, the one photograph of the truck with the tank on the bottom, that is equipment that we were able to purchase in the 2022 budget and is being configured now. So we're hopeful that we'll receive this equipment in the first quarter of the new year and we'll be able to deploy it uh, this season and it will provide us uh, redundancy as well as uh, additional capacity to be able to service our anti-icing and de-icing routes. One of the things where our public, motoring public, can certainly help us and our residents can help us is following these uh, few public safety tips. Please prepare for uh, winter driving conditions, yourself and, and your vehicles. Be patient when you are on the road if you, you do have to drive. And always give yourself extra time. And please don't pass or crowd the plow. These are big vehicles and we need people to please stay back at least 100 feet. And for the residents in the residential or neighborhood streets, if we can park the vehicles off the streets, that helps get the plows in there that much sooner and safer, as well as ensuring that the garbage cans and recycle containers are not placed on the street but are, are placed in the driveway for, for servicing. So just in conclusion, I just uh, want to say that uh, we are committed to continuously improve our operations uh, through some of the things I've talked about, ongoing staff education, new equipment, training, and being mindful of the impact our operations have on the environment, that we want to continue to be good stewards, and then just a, a good judicious use of new technology and, and equipment. And then absolutely critical analysis of every event that we, we uh, respond to, that we look for opportunities to learn, grow, and, and do better. And with that, that concludes the presentation. Thank you, Mr. Newkirk. A lot of detail and certainly more exciting photographs than we often have in these presentations. Um, questions or comments from Council? Councilmember Ramsdell. Yeah. yeah, thank you, Mayor. Um, yeah, uh, thank you, Mr. Newkirk, for that uh, presentation. Um, having grown up in New England and being very used to snow events growing up, uh, it's really interesting for me to kind of see how the city is kind of addressing um, uh, the uh, snow removal. Um, a couple questions I have uh, regarding um, uh, the liquid de-icer. Uh, now, from what I, what I recall is that um, the de-icer is effective down to a certain temperature, and then at below that temperature, then the de-icer is not effective. So um, I'm kind of wondering if um, how that how the liquid de-icer compares to the salt br salt brine or you know the salt. I mean, what or sand? Like what's what uh, uh, which kind of tends to be the most effective uh, method of kind of I'm kind of breaking through some of that like the compact snow and ice, which the plows can't 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 do, but some of the de-icer hopefully um, can. Thank you. Yes, uh, Councilmember Ramsand, excellent question. The uh, liquid de-icers, the calcium chloride that we use, is effective down to a temperature of uh, 15 degrees, 
and then the uh, salt brine is effective down to 23 degrees, as is uh, the rock salt when it's untreated. But when it is treated with our calcium chloride, it, it again is also effective down to that lower temperature of about 15 degrees Fahrenheit. Thank you. Another question I have is um, re regarding, you mentioned that you're kind of you look doing a critical analysis of the event performance from previous years. Um, uh, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if, if, uh, uh, if, you know, what you found and also, uh, you know, as far as school bus routes, it said 50% are not covered. Um, when you're starting to go into the, into the neighborhoods, are you prioritizing the school bus routes in those neighborhoods? Um, or or is, are you just kind of hitting the, the neighborhoods as, as you can? I'm kind of wondering about what kind of uh, strategy you use um, when you start going into the neighborhoods. Thank you. Yes. The strategy that we use for the, the residential streets is often dictated by the, the event itself. And sometimes uh, we're certainly in contact with the, the school district, and so there's conversation between our snow boss and maybe their transportation director. Uh, so there is some communication and knowledge of the conditions of the street on the ground. But we're usually servicing the residential streets by area and try to go through in an area that seems to be the most efficient deployment of, of the plows. And in that sense, it isn't always, it doesn't always match up with the school district bus routes. I continue to ask more questions. Yeah, go, go, no, <laughs> okay. yeah, go, go ahead. Go All right. Take your time. Okay. We'll, yeah. yeah. Um, the other question I have is, and I've seen this done in the um, uh, in the in the East Coast, not so much around here, but um, where there are trouble areas, where there are some steep hills, I mean, I, I know in our neighborhood we had an issue with the school bus, couldn't get up one of the hills, and neighbors started grabbing their shovels and trying to, you know, uh, getting their kitty litter and trying to help the school bus up the hill. Um, and so I was kind of wondering, okay, what, what do other communities do? And one of the things that I found out was that um, some communities will actually, like, place a, uh, a drum um, at the top of the hill, and there'll be, like, a, uh, the, the neighborhood will actually, you know, Take, take some of that sand and throw it in the, in the trouble areas. I don't know if that's something that can be done. The other thing I was kind of wondering about, and I asked staff earlier today about this, was there's programs called um, Sand for Seniors, which is um, some communities are providing buckets of sand to seniors, either delivered by the pol police or by volunteers, to help seniors you know, sp um, uh, you know, uh, spread uh, sand on their driveways and sidewalks so to avoid um, falls. Um, and that is all the questions I have. Thank you. Yes, excellent points. Um, one of the things I did not mention uh, that is available for, for citizens is we do make uh, sand available at the Hamlin Park in a central location that uh, residents can come and get sand or sand bags for, for their use. Um, I, the city manager did share the uh, buckets for seniors idea, and that was, for me personally, that was the first time I've, I've heard of that program. And I do know that we will be debriefing further with our emergency management coordinator tomorrow. And so that idea is certainly going to be uh, one of those items on the list. And we will also think about uh, the comment that you made about uh, sand in maybe other regional areas uh, outside of Hamlin. So thank you. We will take that feedback and, and provide that as part of our debrief and analysis. Councilmember Mark. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Newkirk, I really appreciate your mentioning the environmental 
impacts of salt. Thank you for doing so. But I'm tag teaming on my colleague's question about steep slopes. I noticed that two uh, yesterday that both third uh, northwest and eighth northwest were blocked off. They're both steep slopes. They're both shown as priority roads that go to, to uh, 205th. I'm just wondering how the city handles those kind of situations. Appreciate that you didn't have anything to do with the topography. <laughs> Councilmember Mark, that's an excellent question, and I'll, I'll try to be brief, but it, it does get into the nature of uh, the environment and the snow. And when we have a, a freeze and thaw cycle, it, it certainly that's where that snow and ice bonds to the roadway surface. And I think I mentioned already that uh, our equipment isn't really structured to break that bond. Uh, you need much heavier equipment typically to be able to do that. And, you know, that is something that uh, we can continue to look at. Uh, there is equipment that is designed to break that uh, compact snow and ice bond. And I became aware of that through my attendance at the uh, APWA Snow Conference School. So we need to do further evaluation on that equipment to make sure that it would provide the, the cost benefit to be able to address some of that compact snow and ice. Uh, and the, the other possibility, of course, would be to take those off of priority routes. If they're so steep that, that right now you can't do it, perhaps they shouldn't be on there as a priority route, just so people can see and know to redirect themselves. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's a challenge, and I'm really glad you went to snow school. Other questions or comments from council? No, I, I had a couple. Um, for starters, we require property owners to clean the sidewalks in front of their properties. We don't enforce it residentially, and I hope we don't ever enforce it residentially because it can be quite a task and not everybody's up for it. But commercially, my understanding is we also don't really enforce that, and what we end up with is a really uneven set of cleared sidewalks with pretty much no way to safely walk through the commercial areas because you'll be going along and it's fine and all of a sudden there's six inches of melting snow on it. So I'm wondering if you can confirm that we don't currently enforce yeah, the, the sidewalk clearing in commercial areas and if not, whether that's something we should look into for the future. Yes, Mayor Scully, that, that is correct. We are not currently enforcing that uh, for uh, a variety of reasons, but I think the dominant reason is most of our events are fairly short duration and the cost benefit to go through a, um, an enforcement type of action, uh, it, it doesn't seem to pencil out. With that said, I think there's opportunities to revisit and, and think about how we approach our community members and especially our, our commercial businesses on some of their responsibilities related to clear keeping the sidewalks clear. And I think an educational campaign could be one way to help uh, elevate that, that concern. Thank you, and I agree, and it's sort of a forward-looking, not during the event having a whole fleet of folks out siding, but rather making sure that businesses understand it, um, because it's the city gets pretty impassable if you're mobility impaired, as is, and it's it's always troubled me watching folks try to get along some of these, these stretches. I have a couple more comments, but I saw Councilmember Roberts raise his hand, so I'll defer to him. No, you can finish up. Okay. Um, so my second comment, Mr. Newkirk, is I heard... The city sidewalks around parks are a priority. 
what I observed in this recent event is that although their priority, there were significant areas, particularly around Twin Ponds is one I saw, or sorry, around uh, Burgers Bog, or, around, uh, uh, yeah, around Burgers Bog that I saw, where we're not getting that done. And again, it becomes a big impediment to anyone who's trying to walk, particularly in the denser areas. It was a little embarrassing to see that we require folks to keep their sidewalks clear, and yet we weren't getting ours clear. So I'm wondering if you need additional resources to make sure that happens for future events. Yes, uh, Mayor Scully, I, I think it's, it's definitely one of those areas where we're resource challenged, both with some equipment for the sidewalks as well as, as personnel. I, we have improved and focused on our primary facilities, like I said, City Hall, Spartan Recreation, uh, Richmond, uh, Highlands, but there is still some more work to do, and I think it's, uh, again, it's, it's some of the resource limitations that are challenging us from, from being able to attend to those other sidewalks in front right. of the park. I, I appreciate that, but having us meet our own requirements is, is pretty important, and so I would hope that would be an expectation and that you would come back to us with whatever you need to make sure that that happens for the future. Um, finally, a couple of just things. I Last, during the snowpocalypse, I guess we're calling it, I observed the de-icer at work, and it was on a patch of ice in front of my house, and a, a, a beer delivery truck was trying to make it up, and he was determined he was going to make it. And I eventually came out and said, hey, I'm Irish. I still don't want a load of beer in my living room. Um, and we did what we could, the two of us with neighbors, and eventually the city truck showed up, and I guess conditions were right, because after it drove backwards up this hill and then down, you could hear the ice crack. I mean, it was really fast. And I, to the extent we can identify problem spots like that, which may not be priorities but are huge safety hazards, I would encourage us to be as aggressive as possible with it. It, it made a, a giant difference and turned a really hazardous situation into, into a road that was passable. Um, and finally, um, that same event, I went through the website and a couple of other places to try and figure out how I should just call it in, and I couldn't figure it out. And I ended up emailing Mr. Norris. I happened to knew, know, you know who he is because I was deputy mayor at the time, but we, I think we could use a public information campaign on how to ask for help for those hazardous areas. The information is there. You can find it on the website. There's C Click Fix. There's all the rest. But it wasn't easily accessible. And to the extent we can get that message out, I think it would, uh, it would do us a great service. Right. Councilmember Roberts. Uh, thank you, Mayor. Um, I'll say that last year I had the, it was, I will say it was, for me it was, and my family, it was a little bit fun to break out the snowshoes and walk to the store uh, when it was icy and packed down. But I'm very fortunate that I am able-bodied and healthy enough to, and have the resources to be able to do that and to part into have the equipment necessary to get through and to go to a store and, and visit an establishment without daring to uh, drive on some icy, snowy routes, which is probably even more dangerous than lots of things. But this is where I, I think that we really need to do more emphasis on making sure that our sidewalks are clear and that individuals who do not have the same resources and who need to be able to get to a bus stop or need to get to purchase goods and equipment, especially if we we have a storm that is long lasting, that we, we need those sidewalks clear. It's not a, sidewalks are not a luxury. They're not a sort of, they should not be seen as an afterthought in terms of our mobility across the, 
across the region so we can move people and goods, but in this case, largely people, to bus stops and modes of transportation where they can get to their employer or get to a grocery store to purchase goods. And so the, I think to the extent that we actually do push and press and continue to work to make sure that our, we do have make sure that people are able to have access to, to the city, the rights away and feel safe on the rights away. And so the extent to me, the, to the extent that we can do, we ought to do that, I think is very important and is not something sort of secondary. It should be, it should be primary in terms of making sure that people can access stores and um, bus stops safely and equitably for everyone. So my two cents, but I do not think we need to, we should sort of push sidewalks to sort of being something secondary, especially when there are potentially lengthy um, snow and ice events. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you. Any further questions or comments from Council? Mr. Nurkirk, anything else? Yes, I'd, I'd just like to say thank you, Council. I, I appreciate your observations, your concerns, and I want to assure you that you've been heard, and we will uh, factor a lot of this information into our debrief. And again, as a learning organization, uh, we will look to do better with the next event. And I'll just wrap up by saying, I have to give a big shout out to the men and women who uh, were operating the plows and all of the other equipment during this event. Um, there were some very long hours uh, over the last week. So thank you all for a, a job well done. All right. Thank you, Mr. Newkirk. And that concludes this last item.